from 99.9 The Fan. This is The Drive with Tim Donnelly. Sponsored by Coach Pete at Capital Financial Advisory Group. Visit us at CapitalFinancialUSA.com. Joining us on the Heaster Automotive Group Hotline, Jeanette Lee, a.k.a. The Black Widow. And there's a 30 for 30 documentary coming out next week, December 13th, on her, on her time playing billiards, how she got into billiards, and what she is doing now. She joins us now on the Heaster Automotive Group Hotline. Jeanette, how are you? I'm good. I'm very good. Thank you. So how did this how did this come about? Uh, who who reached out to who uh, to look back on this? Um, well, I've been with Octagon for a number of years, and it was, you know, when they got the news about my cancer and everything like that, they were just supportive right from the beginning. And then they, they said, hey, we've got this idea. You know, what do you think? And I was like, yes, because I kind of always wanted, you know, especially now when you have stage four ovarian cancer, you start to think about your legacy and what, what it means and how prepared am I making my children and things like that. And so having an opportunity to memorialize, you know, so much of my career in such a, just an elegant, classy way that was very sensitive to um, to me and my family. So it was a it was really a great experience, but an incredible opportunity, um, you know, so that I do have something to show my children that my younger children, my older children, of course, have seen me play and all that. But as my health got down, you know, my younger children, they were very young when I was competing a lot, so they didn't really get it. And now they're like 11 and 12 or 12 and 13. And sorry, my daughter glared at me. <laughs> Get that age but, right, Bob. Come on. <laughs> but, you know, they don't remember a lot. They just know that I'm famous and that a lot of people love me. Yes, they, I was so good. Yes, but they do. Really feeling it and seeing it that wasn't there. Jeanette Lee joining us here on the Heaster Automotive Group Hotline. That's Jovius. I'm Joe Gillio. I have two, I, I'm sure these will be answered in the 30 for 30, but I have two origin stories for you. Two origin yeah. story questions for you. Where did the Black Widow nickname come from, number one? And number two, how old were you the first time you took money off of somebody playing pool? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm happy to say that um, I was getting to kind of a intermediate to, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, semi-pro level when I walked into this pool room, Howard Beach Billiard Club, and it was the first million-dollar pool club in the city. And the owner was reminiscing after about a year of me frequenting there because he offered me free pool table and, you know, half price on food and things like that. But the table time, because I played so much, it saved me a lot of money. So I started going there regularly. And he's the one that said, I remember when you first walked in. (laughs) You know, this pretty young girl dressed in all black, and you looked very happy and nice, and then you got a rack of balls, and you spread them on the table, and boom, the first second you grabbed your cue stick to look at the table, your entire demeanor changed, Hmm. and you looked ready to kill. And he thought to himself that I lure my opponents to the table, and then I eat them alive, and it (laughs) reminded him of the Black Widow. So from that point, Teasingly, 
you know, the servers and the bartender and the bouncer and him, they all started calling me Black Widow. Mm-hmm. And it stayed there. But then um, it was just around the time that I first got to play in my first pro event. And so they'd say, well, do you have any nicknames? And I'm like, no, pretty much everybody just calls me Jeanette. Not really anything beyond that. I mean, I have a few friends that my closest friends call me Jay. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe Jeanette's too long for them. I don't know. But, they, you know, they call me Jay. But other than that, and then they were like, no one, no one's ever called you anything other than Jeanette. Like they were pushing. And I was like, well, there's some guys in my pool room, you know, just my close friends that call me the Black Widow. But no one else knows about it. No one's, and they were like, oh, that's cool. It seems that seems like that would suit you really well just from watching you and this and that. And I was like, yeah, it's just something we do. Well, it turned out to be a huge kind of expose on the world of pool and hustling, who the greatest players are, the greatest hustlers. Mm-hmm. And it was Alessandra Stanley from the New York Times Magazine doing a cover piece. And so they had Ava Lawrence on the cover, but inside they had pictures of different pros, but they also said, do you have anyone at this pro event that's from New York? You know, maybe we can get like a local since they are the New York Times Magazine. And so one of them pointed out, well, that girl right there, Jeanette, she's brand new. This is her first tournament, but she's from New York if you want to talk to her. Mm -hmm. And they didn't know the can of worms that they opened up. (laughs) So (laughs) when this piece came out, it definitely included this very dark picture of me in my black suit and um, somehow the lighting, they made it just look very spooky looking in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So... Um, in there, it called me the Black Widow in her black leather and lace, which at that age, I didn't have black leather and lace. I was too broke to have leather and lace. <laughs> you know, I was a teenager. Right, right. You're young. just you're just coming up. Jeanette Lee joining yeah. us here on the OG alongside Joe Giglio. I'm Joe Obia's 30 for 30 documentary on December 13th called Jeanette Lee Versus. Now, we're based in the Triangle in, in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. Very familiar mm-hmm. with Duke and Carolina. And Duke and Carolina and their basketball matchup has been credited for really helping ESPN2 become this thing. Although I would push back that for people of a certain age, I'm, I'm about to be 44, Julia was 47. Like, when we were watching ESPN2, it was, a, it was a whole range of things, not your traditional sports. And while, you know, we started this conversation and the genesis of this documentary and, and what legacy you wanted to leave – I feel like there also has to be some, maybe I'm advocating for you here, like you're a big reason why ESPN2 became a household name by having the personalities. When you walked onto the screen, there was a swagger to you that you had never really seen before. I mean, I'm assuming that some of this is covered in the in the documentary. Yes, definitely. It is. It is. But they showed it in a very real way. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like it, they did such a good job. Okay. Have you? I was worried, you know, because there is a very strong, aggressive, competitive side to me. I'm not afraid to talk. I tend to be very truthful, and I have to work hard to be diplomatic. <laughs> you know? But one thing my friends say about me, they, they appreciate that I'll tell them the truth, because a lot of friends will kind of try to not say the truth. Whereas I, I will in a gentle way. So they do like that they can at least count on me to be authentic. 
Jeanette Lee joining us here on the Heaster Automotive Group Hotline. This is the OG that's Chovius. I'm Joe Giglio. Catch her on this 30 for 30. It's, I'm like Joe said, unbelievable story, a big part of ESPN2's history. Which part of the documentary is your favorite part, Jeanette? I think just um, I loved how they were able to paint the picture of my life. Obviously, they couldn't get everything in, but my favorite part was hearing from the people that I love. Because even though we love each other, that doesn't mean that they actually make a time to stop and give me any positive feedback or really remember this or appreciate this or whatever. And in this, in this movie, my children were able to show that they're, they're very understanding and they are. And um, I don't know. It was, just, it was so nice to hear from my girls and my son and my mom and my sister and some of my friends and some of my cohorts you know, on the tour. And so it was, it was, that was probably my favorite part is just hearing how they really felt about me. Can, you know, can any of your kids beat you in pool in nine ball? I would say that they will be able to, at some point, we just need them to actually like pool first. Ah, but. Oh, that's, yeah, that's that's always the thing. It's that's always the thing. They don't want to. As I say, you 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 rebelled, right? You rebelled. I guess it, it makes sense that the kids would rebel against billiards, right? Right. I mean, my younger girls they like it, but very much on a you know, it's only when they have a play date. Uh, sorry, they don't have play dates. <laughs> it's only when their friends come to hang out. Uh huh. You know? Uh huh. And that's point where i have to stop but mom we don't have play dates anymore i'm like oh i didn't know somebody i didn't get the memo <laughs> yeah but, um, yeah when their friends come over and they want to play then the girls will play with them very cool um, very cool jeanette lee 30 30- really does like it but he doesn't have time what is he into well he was working for jp morgan oh, real and um working a lot okay a lot of hours um so- but he did actually join a pool league started playing on like that so they got to kind of start to feel and see that competitive spirit gotcha gotcha mm-hmm. Jeanette Lee the 30 for 30 comes out next week December 13th uh, Jeanette Lee versus I'm very much looking forward to this Jeanette we appreciate the time thank you very much thank uh you. for for you chatting with us I want to make sure that they know that it's eight o'clock eastern on December Tuesday December 13th and I would really appreciate um, if they could tune in and share, 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 and let everybody know Jeanette Lee versus, and I think that title is so awesome because of how many things I've had to overcome and, and battle with throughout my life. But immediately after that, we'll be watching the Jeanette Lee podcast to follow at nine o'clock. So the ESN 30 for 30 will be at eight o'clock. And then at nine o'clock, I'll stay online at the APA Facebook page, which is at pool players and um stands for american pool players association but if you can share that info and let them know that they can find me on twitter as black widow or jeanette lee as instagram or jeanette lee the black widow on facebook page you just did it jeanette and by the way f that stage number and f cancer you're an inspiration thank you I love you. I love you already. I just want to meet you in person now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jeanette. What's going on here with this 
World Cup game between Argentina and, and Netherlands. Netherlands late tying goal. We're in overtime now, right? Correct. Okay. So you got about 20 more minutes of overtime or what they like to call extra time. Yeah. And then they'll go to penalties. This will end up being in penalties. Messi will miss his penalty. <laughs> and that'll be and, and that'll be it for his international career. And the orange will advance. No, I don't know. It's 2 to 2. They're in the 101st minute. All right. We'll keep you updated. So Hubert Davis, North Carolina men's basketball coach, had press availability today. They're back home finally. Tar Heels had an interesting stretch for about three weeks where they were at the Phil Knight Invitational, and then they had the Big Ten ACC Challenge. They lose to in, uh, to Indiana on the road, come back for like a hot minute, and they're off to the Castle to take on Virginia Tech. Weren't really in that game for most of it. They had a late push to make it somewhat interesting, like a two-possession game, but again, they spent so much injury, in, energy trying to get back into that game. It was uh, it was moot. They also didn't have Armando Baycott. So Hubert Davis met with the media today and had an update on Armando Baycott. He's getting he's back on the court. He's trying to practice, but he's his availability for tomorrow against Georgia Tech is somewhat up in the air. Hubert Davis did talk about how they were happy to be home finally. It was nice to be home for a week after all that travel, and they've lost four straight. Georgia Tech. I couldn't tell you one thing about Georgia Tech at this point, and usually it makes no sense to try to understand Georgia Tech because Josh Passner is their head coach. If there ever was a whimsical coach in the ACC, if it were if there were a movie, he'd be the you know the wacky guy that finds ways to 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 win and everything else. I can never really take any sort of analysis out of losing to Georgia Tech, but if they lose, if Carolina loses on Saturday. I think that's when people will finally start going, whoa, 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 whoa. All the, not excuse-making, but contextualizing of Carolina's season to this point will go out the window, and people will have a legitimate wonder as to what the hell's going on with that program, Armando Baycott injury aside. Even if Baycott doesn't play? Even if Baycott doesn't play. I'm telling you, man. At some point, things start to kind of get out of your control in terms of how people talk about you. Now, some of that you can care about or not care about. This was Georgia Tech was the one team early last year, remember, that Carolina could paste. Yes. Which inspired Josh Passner to say, I'm telling you, that's a Final Four team. Then they turn around and lose to Kentucky by 40, and you're like, what are you talking about? But he knew. Josh Passner was right. He called the shot, and he was right. They were a Final Four team. So Hubert Davis, I'm paraphrasing here, but I guess he got asked some questions about what the people are saying. Yeah, that ESPN story probably came up as well. And he had a real problem with social media and what social media does to players and you shouldn't check that stuff out and I'm not paying attention to it as he said it's like I don't know what people are saying but I'm guessing it's based on a lot of criticism about what what we're doing so he understands that the results for Carolina basketball right now are not at the level that Carolina fans want and there's been an open discussion about how much of last year was what well, at the end a team getting hot or a team that really finally found themselves and there was going to be a carryover into the season I mean most people thought the latter. That's how they end up the preseason number one, and they've dropped out of the AP Top 25. But I will say this. There's a difference from last year where you've got a new coach and you don't know what to make of this team, and you can just chalk it up to growing pains for the Hubert Davis era. But last year, as awesome as it was for the Tar Heels, 
there is always a danger when you bring everybody back that the expectations flip completely and you don't know how to handle that. And that's when things can get away from you. And that's when chemistry can really go out the window. I'm with you, Julia. I still think it's way too early to be fretting about Carolina basketball. But I'm not in control how people talk about them. You're not in control about no. about over how people talk about them. And if it becomes a thing, then this season really is never going to get back on track. My thing is I think they still have talented players. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously you want to see Armando Baycott be healthy. I don't think we've seen R.J. Davis or Caleb Love play at the level that they did at the end of last season. Mm-hmm. Legitimately, that is linked to Brady Manick and the way that he kind of drove the bus. And it could be like an either-or situation. Now Carolina's in a situation where they need Davis and Love. It's not an either-or. Yeah. It's not an either-or. And you're also seeing some separation in the ACC. Who's good? Who's bad? Yeah. And right now, Carolina's just a, a very middle-of-the-road ACC team based on what we've seen so far. And it's not just about like some of the uh, high, you know, bet, better teams that they've played. I'm just talking about, can they shoot? Can they run their offense? They well, can't. You know, their, yeah, the def- way that, their defense is also pretty spotty as well. The way that they're passing the ball and sharing the ball is is very un-Carolina-like. The way that they're rebounding their misses is very mm-hmm. un-Carolina-like. Those are two areas, though, that I think that can be improved. That's why I'm saying let's not, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Well, perhaps. And Carolina right now is shooting 29.2% from three. Right. Not great. Maybe they can go the Grinnell route and, and just, just take, take all threes. nothing but threes, especially if Armando Baycott is not going to play. So Grinnell College set an NCAA men's basketball record last night for three-point attempts when it tried every one of its 111 shots from beyond the arc. They ended up winning 124-67 to 67 over Amanis Bible College. It eclipsed the 109 three-point shots that Troy attempted against DeVry back on January 12th, 1992. Trojans won 258 to 141 in what is still the highest scoring game in NCAA history. So there you go. There's your history lesson for the day. Jacking a bunch of threes. I mean, it's a little bit of a tale as old as time. It just goes back to Paul Westhead, Loyola Marymount. You know, they the, the, the Bo Kimball and... Hank Gathers teams, they they believed. You get it up and down the floor, shoot as fast as you can, because the, the more shots you take, the more points you're going to score. It's the OG alongside Joe Giglio. I'm Joe Ovias. We'll give you a quick update. Bomani Jones, ESPN, Game Theory on HBO. He'll join us next. Typically, when we talk to Bomani Jones, we try to keep it local, Bo, right? We try to keep it um, fun. And I usually try to stay away from, you know, bringing Bomani on to talk about heavy topics. This ain't one of those weeks, unfortunately. Bomani Jones joins us now on the Heaster Automotive Group Hotline. Bo, what up, man? Oh, good, man. What's happening? So, uh, so what, what's that video from CNN up to now? Like 3 million views? Oh, it was at like 2-9 the last time I looked, which was two days ago. So I, I texted you and I said, "Look, man, you've gone viral before, but there's some there was something different about this week on CNN when talking about Dion. What do you, what do you think? What do you think happened with that?" Well, I think one thing was the the video got sent out with the word "sellout" on the bottom, <laughs> and of course, you know that that that's provocative. It gets the people going. Right. The other part is 
Deion Sanders is really, really famous. Like, I think it can be easy for us to forget what the magnitude of Deion Sanders' fame was and how that continues and what he then subsequently means to people. Like, he was super famous in the 1990s, which is much different than being super famous now because there were fewer famous people. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that, and I don't know why they're so interested in the white people. That's the part that I don't understand. I see why this is a topic for black people because the topic of HBCUs is different and all of that stuff. But, man, I had a whole lot of white people jumping in with opinions that I found to be remarkably uninformed. Well, I, I, well, I mean, that's it's just another Fair. day on that's another day on Twitter for being real. Fair. But I, I actually I think I actually think the HBCU aspect of it is the reason why you saw so many uninformed opinions, because I don't think people understand what HBCUs are really about. And I, you and I have talked about this. I'm not saying anything I haven't said before. Like, for somebody like me who grew up in Boca Raton, Florida, like peak middle class, son of an IBMer, my first interaction with HBCUs was a fictional show, for heaven's right. sake. A different world, which I absolutely loved as a preteen and teenager. But that was my experience with HBCUs. People don't know what it's about. That's the problem. Yeah, but I think the other level of it is, I think white people struggle with this idea of, and I honestly a lot of black people too, but especially for white people, well, what is your problem? He's doing better. Like they almost treat it like we all want him to lead a hood. You know what I mean? Like, 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 like you don't want to, you don't want him to better himself, improve his life. You know, like don't, like I, I think that there's that part of it, and also. I think at once people are fascinated by Dion because he's so rich and rich people get this level of fascination. But I think that there's a level of disconnect that comes from me where you tell me that Dion only gets paid $300,000 in Jackson State. Um, one, the idea that we're calling only $300,000 like, is funny to hear regular people say that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if you know actual rich people, dude, that $300,000, Dion Sanders is never going to touch that $300,000. Right, like whatever the money is that he gets from Jackson, he probably ain't even gonna really touch the money he get from Colorado. He is so rich; it is absurd how rich he is. And that all gets us here to where I mean, I did the Donald Sterling thing. Maybe that little T-shirt I wore that one time went around, but it wasn't really attached to a piece of content. Right, this has worn me out this week, Jack. <laughs> Bomani Jones, ESPN, HBO. The right time is the podcast joining us here on the Heaster Automotive Group Hotline. All right, Bo. I, I contend that Bo took, excuse me, that Dion took the Jackson State job because he couldn't get another job. So do you think it was a mistake for him to take the Jackson State job in the first place? Mm. Oh, to take the Jackson State job or the yeah. Colorado job? No, the Jackson State job. Oh, God, the Jackson State job is the only reason he could get the Colorado job. Right, yeah. The, the, the Jackson State job is the best job that he ever got. Like, the thing about Dion is like when people talk about, man, Peyton Manning, will he be a head coach? Peyton Manning will never stop and take the time to be somebody's assistant coach. Right. So thereby, I don't think he'll ever be anybody's head coach. Dion had no interest in being anybody's assistant coach. They don't give people head coaching jobs generally without being an assistant coach first. Jackson State did that. The other thing about Jackson State was it was the perfect job for him at that level because you went to a place that was already top five in attendance in FCS, a place where there was already a really built-in fan base and a school that had four Hall of Famers previously. So this is a school that has had success, that people have heard of, that people were aware of. No, no, no. He's not at Colorado unless he takes yeah. that job. That's the best decision that he ever made in his life. So the part that – and Bomani Jones is joining us here on the OG. Game Theory is about about a month away. Wait, what, January 20th, right? It was one in, yes, uh, sir. It's, it's coming back. So here – I think 
at the, my read on this is that Deion Sanders did what every other guy with coaching aspirations wants to do, right? He's going to sell you on the program, and then one week he's selling you on the program, the next week he's taking another job. Like, this is not a unique situation. But I do feel like a lot of this pushback and why you see sellout scrawled across CNN is because Dion came at the HBCU Jackson State angle as though I am going to help elevate this thing. And you actually did you actually did a segment on this on, on, on Game Theory, which I highly recommend people watch, that there's this desire for HBCU sports, specifically football, to rival that of what we see in the Power Five as though that will be some sort of balance tipping point for black colleges when it's like, and this is the point you made on the on the feature, and I completely agree with you, all you're doing is creating another system of exploitation for players. Yeah, well, the other part is the funding gap is so significant that what you talk about is simply impossible. Yeah. Like, in order to get the level of capital necessary, one, black people ain't got enough money, right? Like, you can't get enough of the donations and all of that in right, order right. Um, to make things happen. It's not It's not going to be a thing. And, yes, it's just going to be, unless you overhaul the entire system, that what the end result is going to be isn't terribly better than what's coming up on the other side. You just got a different oppressor. And that is not, like, actually superior. Now, the thing I would say, though, is I do think that there's an element of this with Dion that is uniquely distasteful, which is I don't think that he ever had much respect for where he was. It was a means to an end, sure. and that's the part that people around the swag have always had a problem with. So yesterday you saw the clip of him um, at Colorado at the gym and getting the standing ovation. Good for him. What you don't see is Dion at the Celebration Bowl press conference because Dion didn't go to that because he wanted to go to the press conference. I mean, go to the basketball game. At Colorado, mm. like he's already gone. And if you were already gone, you shouldn't be coaching this bowl game. It could wind up biting him in the keister because they got smoked in that bowl game last year. And they might get smoked in that bowl yeah. game again this year. But he wants to do it, I would guess, because it's another chance for him to be on national television and to sell himself to recruits. But normally when a guy takes a job under these circumstances, he's gone. He leaves right away. Dion is sticking around to still try to get something out of it, and I really think it may prove to be counterproductive. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Although, isn't that you know how the how the how the swag views Dion encapsulated in the halftime performance where the band PA guy said, "We told you he wasn't swag." Yes, yes. I mean, is that not it? I mean, but you know that was the thing Eddie Robinson said to him because. To be fair to Dion, I think a level of this, and there's going to be a certain jealousy that comes toward him. Now, of course, he got this job because he's Dion Sanders as much as anything else. But I don't, if I'm not mistaken, Dion Sanders is the first black head coach of an HBCU to parlay that into an FBS job. Hardly any of them can even parlay that into an FCS job. So, like when he talks about raising the levels, if Dion has stayed there for like 10 years and the attention on him then finally took the time to trickle down to other people, I wouldn't be so critical of him. But the argument being made that like, hey, okay, well, Dion did this, you know, it brought all this attention to everybody else. Can't nobody else name no other HBCU players, teams, coaches, anything else. It brought a lot of it, – people can't even name his own players. Right. They can name his son, his son. and they can name Travis Hunter. They can't name nobody else. Well, you, you don't have to look any further than in basketball here in the triangle. Lavelle Moton, the success that he's had, and he can't get he can't he can't get another look God, beyond he'd, Central. He'd, he'd have to be an assistant under somebody right. at this point, right? Yeah. So you know, and Dion won big at Jackson State. I know you mentioned they have yeah. a rich history, but you know they weren't winning when he got there. So I I do, I do think there is something that he was successful there. 
How do you think that will yeah. translate in the in the pack, whatever ten I guess it'll be by the time he gets there? Yeah, well, the, the thing that's going to be interesting about Colorado is the only selling point that he has is I'm Deion Sanders, mm-hmm. right? Like at Jackson State, but he's going to Travis Hunter. His selling points are a Dion, which I think was the big one. Because if you're a corner, why wouldn't right. why would you not want to play for Dion? <laughs> right. But you had that, but you also did have the HBCU experience, Jackson State. You had those things that you were able to use as selling points. What is the selling point for somebody going to Colorado? Like, how far will the magnitude of Deion Sanders' personality go? They don't have a natural recruiting base. Lincoln Riley being at USC greatly changes up what you can do getting guys out of California. Arizona is a place that produces players now, and they don't stay anywhere in state. So maybe he can go there, and he can wind up getting those guys. But this is not going to be an easy climb for him. Now, I would contend that if you consistently go 8-4 and at Colorado, you're doing a really good job. Are people going to be satisfied with Dion consistently going eight and four? I'm not sure. Probably not. Probably not. How much does he also want to coach beyond his son? I, I think a lot of that, you know, he coached his son in, in oh. high school too, right? I mean, or created the program just to coach his son. Oh no, I think he. I don't think he's in this to coach his kids. I think he is in this to be Coach Prime. Like I think that what he wants, he wants what comes with being the coach, the respect, mm-hmm. the stature, all of those things. He likes being in the commercials with Nick Saban, right? Like this is the place that I think he wants to go. And to be fair to him, I also do believe that he's one of them selfish people that does like want to be nice to other people, right? So like I think he looks at kids and he does want to help kids. Like he does want to uplift them, but he's in it for Dion. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think the reasons are that magnanimous. I don't know him, so I don't want to be, you know, I want to be a little bit careful in how presumptuous I am about that. But I do think that he's one of those people that would like to help the people, but he's always going to take care of Dion. Bomani Jones, ESPN Right Time, is the podcast Game Theory HBO Season 2 comes your way January 20th. Um, we only have like 30 seconds here, but I'm assuming the most predictable thing that you saw this week was the sportsification of the Brittany Griner news treating it like an actual sports trade I mean, <laughs> who won the trade right who won the trade you know it's not like we have expiring contracts guys that's not how this works <laughs> i was it's predictable and sad all at the same time that we're we've all suddenly become geopolitical experts in hostage negotiations with uh, an athlete bringing him home well also it turned into a what about Yes. Like, like, like the, the Whalen dude, and I admit, I don't really know that much about the story with him. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm aware, like, I know why he got arrested. I know he's been there a while. I don't know any background details of it. But, hey, man, we ain't going to be able to get so many hostages out of here at one time. Like, they act like, like, people act like the United States is like, we choose to release Brittany Griner. Like, as, as if they were the ones that get to make the personnel move. That's not how it goes. No. It's like, okay, I'll give, I'll give you that one. All right. Well, I guess that's what we're going to get. Now, where I think that Biden and them got lucky is that they had, if I were Putin, I would have given them that white man and then left Brittany Griner in jail and let Joe Biden deal with the Internet. <laughs> you imagine what would have happened if, if Paul Whalen had actually gotten out first? I don't even think it I, honestly, I don't even think it becomes a story. The, what, what, the what, what I'm getting at, what I'm getting at is like. You know, I'll say his name. The Clay Travises of the world don't even talk about him. Yeah, but see, they would have talked about him. They wouldn't have said anything about when he got out. But the people who are most happy about Brittany Griner not uh, getting out would have then said something. Like, this was, hey, man, 
they put her in there for nine months. She was in a penal colony for a vape cartridge. It was so cold that she had to cut off her dreadlocks. Yeah, it's brutal. Brutal conditions, man. And you're right. People would have absolutely roasted Biden for that. All right, man, we got to go. Are you done with your photo shoot, by the way? Mm-hmm. It was not a photo shoot. It was like the promo for like the commercials. So oh, we, uh... oh, okay. Put yeah. some respect on your your, your I, guy, he man. Said, he, in the text, he said photo shoot. I said promo shoot. Oh, promo. I misread. I'm getting, you know what? You know what? You know what this is, Bomani? I might have to in, enlarge the text on my phone finally. <laughs> Jillio size. You should see Jillio's phone. The big letters. <laughs> big letters. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. All right, man. Be good.